Well, friends, whether you realized it or not, today is a special day in the life of our church. It was 95 years ago today, to the day, that this church, Waverly Place Baptist Church, was planted, that it was started right here on this corner where we have stood for 95 years now. Now, that's a long time. That's a long time. We only have, by my accounts, one member who, who is, is that old. Uh, we have several others who came to be a part of this church at a young age. Uh, but, but that is a long time, 95 years. And yet we know, we know throughout our lives and in the lives of our friends and family that some churches, they, they don't last 95 years. And, and, and sometimes... We have, to, we have to stop. We have to give up. But, but the Lord has, has been kind to us and generous to us as a church during these days. And it, it puts a question within my mind, a question that I want us to consider this morning as we come to the end of Acts 1. And I'll ask it of you personally. Do you consider your life indestructible? Do you consider your life indestructible? What about your plans? What about your goals? See, in an age of constant superhero movies and alternate realities, this has certainly become something that we've had to consider, whether consciously or subconsciously. Perhaps we think, in light of all the CGI and computer manipulation and space aliens and special powers, that we could never be a part of such a reality. That the idea of being indestructible is a thing of the imagination. It's something that we've come up with to make ourselves feel better. Or maybe we have begun in our hearts and minds to have them molded by, by these narratives that we constantly see played out on the screens in front of us. So much so that we begin to think of ourselves like Thanos. Does anybody know who Thanos is? You, you catch any of the Marvel movies? Okay, some of you do. You might remember him. He was the godlike villain of the recent Marvel movies. And in the last one, as he stepped face to face with the heroes, what does he say? I am inevitable. I am inevitable. In essence, nothing can stop me. Nothing can keep me from my plan. I am indestructible. But what about you? Are you indestructible? This spring, we are beginning to walk through a pretty crazy and cinematic story in and of itself, looking at what happens after Jesus Christ rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. We're looking at this story of how Jesus now reigns from heaven and continues to work in the lives of his earlier followers, early followers, through the Holy Spirit. Now, last week we began this journey through this book, taking it section, taking it a section at the time as we began to see what? That just because Jesus isn't beside us doesn't mean that He isn't working among us and that He isn't moving us toward accomplishing His mission. And we'll see this take place over the summer and the fall. It's our normal practice here to take up a book of the Bible and to work our way through it verse by verse, section by section. Because we believe, as we talked about in the Foundations class this morning, that the Word of God is living and active. And we want to be living and active. So we give ourselves to studying it and considering it. We do this as a church because we want to love God more and more. To grow in our affection and our desires and our delight in Him more and more. We realize the best way to love Him more is to know Him more. The best way to trust Him more is to understand Him more. And so this is what we do on Sunday mornings. So let's look at some of those words He's given us through this doctor-turned-historian named Luke. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 1, 12-26. Acts 1, 12-26. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that is totally okay. You can go ahead and grab that pew Bible there in front of you. We have some large print Bibles on the table in the back. If you're new to the Bible... Let me tell you where you can find our passage today. It's on page 855 there in the Pew Bible. If you're new to the Bible, once you get there, look for that big number one. And then scroll your finger down until you find that little number 12. And that's where I'll begin reading 
here in a moment. We say this every week. If you don't have a Bible, uh, your own personal Bible, friend, you are at the right place today. We have a Bible for you. We would love to give you a Bible. They're on the back with some other free resources. They're blue. Grab one today on your way out and take it and read it. And just begin to ask God to open your eyes to who He is. Well, friends, I trust you've made it somewhere near Acts 1.12. So let me ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word this morning. This is the Word of the Lord to us today. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection." And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know who know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now, friends, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember how we got to this point, how we came to this place. Jesus rises from the dead and he spends 40 days with his disciples, particularly showing himself to be actually alive, bodily risen from the dead, and teaching them. Do you remember what he specifically taught them? He was teaching them how to read the Old Testament and how it all pointed forward to himself. But finally, he tells them that he's not done with them and he's going to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He's going to send them this one who is known as the Holy Spirit, this comforter, this guide that will empower them. He's going to empower them to do what? To be his witnesses, to be his testifiers, telling of who He is, the King, and what He's come to do to bring His kingdom of salvation and redemption for all who believe. It's this glorious introduction and beginning. And a writer who was trying to get sales might think, well, see what Jesus said there in the introduction? Let's get what happens next. Let's get to the action. But that's not what we get here, is it? That's not where Luke goes. See, Luke is not some pseudo-historian who's just trying to get his letter and his story read by as many people as possible. So he doesn't go straight to the action. He tells of this account. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, and, and I hope you do ask yourself this question when you're studying God's Word, is why is this here? And if this were not here, what would God's Word be missing? If every piece of the Scriptures is written and inspired and given to us by God Himself, then He's put it all there on purpose. And so as we're reading, we can ask ourselves, why did God have Luke write this part of the story? Because certainly there are plenty of things that happened in the early years of the local church that Luke didn't write down. So why does he write this? 
Well, friends, in a phrase, I think he's wanting to show us that no matter what, God's mission to reach the nations for His glory, the mission, because of who gave it, is indestructible. Because the mission giver, Jesus Himself, is indestructible. The passage teaches us the foundation of what will carry us along throughout the book of Acts, that Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. And we see this in three ways in particular in this passage. I want you to notice. First, in verses 12 through 14, and also in 18 and 19, we see the wicked judged. We see the wicked judged. Second, in verses 15 through 20, we see the Scripture fulfilled. And third, in verses 21 through 26, we see the witness chosen. So three points, the wicked judged, the Scripture fulfilled, and the wicked, I'm sorry, and the witness chosen. And my prayer, as we look at each of these things, is that you too, you too would come to see that God is not only indestructible, because, but because He is, He's worth loving and trusting and following in every area of your life. All right, so let's jump into the text then, thinking about that. And point one, the wicked judged. The wicked judged. Look back at verse 12. It tells us, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. The Mount of Olives is sometimes called, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day journey. That's about 2,000 cubits. That's as far as you could travel within city limits on a Sabbath day. And so we're saying it's about uh, uh, three quarters of a mile to Jerusalem. And so they go back. And they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. What we find here is that after Jesus spoke to them, He is taken up to heaven and His people, who are standing there amazed, they get asked this question by these two angels that appear to them. Why are you standing looking on? And we're told here that after they come to terms with what's going on, they obey Jesus. And they faithfully make their way from the Mount of Olives back to Jerusalem, exactly where Jesus told them to wait. Don't miss that. This is important as we're going to see next week. And once there, they find themselves again in an upper room. Now, Luke doesn't tell us here if it's the same upper room where they shared that last meal on the night that Jesus was betrayed. In fact, in the Greek, the term he uses for upper room there and the term he uses for upper room here, they're different. So we don't know for sure if it's that same upper room. But we're told later on that there are about 120 people there. So we can assume this. It's a pretty big upper room. And it's a room that... that, being that big is probably owned by somebody who has a fair amount of wealth. And so they're there. You can imagine what these people must have felt like at this point. Jesus was betrayed. He was crucified. He was gone. And then He showed up again alive, really alive. And He was with them. The joy that must have come, the questions that they must have asked. And now He's gone though this time alive, and he's expecting them to do amazing things. Talk about an emotional roller coaster and a test of genuine faith. Can you imagine going through all of that? And yet, here they are. We are told at the end of 13 that the remaining 11 apostles are there. And Luke takes time to list them out. He takes time to name them one by one, reminding us, of how they each were called, chosen individually, and set apart by Jesus Himself. This list that Luke gives here, in fact, is very similar to the one that he gives in Luke 6 when he names the twelve. But they are not alone, are they? We see that there are women there among them, something that Luke always takes time to point out, showing how Jesus' ministry and mission is not just given to men, but also to women. Now, no doubt this included some of the wives of the apostles, but it also more than likely included those women who had been witnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, like those mentioned back in Luke 8 that our children looked at last Sunday in Sunday school. It goes on to tell us that it also includes Jesus' true mother and brothers. And perhaps most surprising of all is that Jesus' own mother is listed here. This is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. But here she is with Jesus' brothers, both biologically and spiritually. She's there with them. 
What are they doing? Well, this is something we're often going to see throughout the book of Acts. If you've read your Bible, if you read the book of Acts, you know what's about to happen next. The Holy Spirit is about to fall down and the nations are going to hear those who have gathered into Jerusalem. Something amazing outward is about to take place. But what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is every time before that happens, what are God's people doing? They're together praying and worshiping. Reminds me of every movement of the Spirit that we've seen throughout church history. What happens right before the Spirit seems to move and a revival and renewal among people? God's people are together and they are praying and they are worshiping. So we see here that's exactly what they are doing. Verse 14, it says, All these with one accord or with one mind. The unity here is is important because of how they get there, how they become unified. The verse says it came by devoting themselves to prayer. But there's one missing, isn't there? You can imagine the calm that sets in, or at least the stillness, after all that has just taken place over the last 43 days. Go there with me. These people have just been on this emotional roller coaster over the last 43 days that started with one of their best friends betraying Jesus with a kiss nonetheless. And now they have finally got a chance to sit down and take a minute. And they realize, they see, that there is one missing from among them, the betrayer. Now we're going to explore the why of what Judas did in a moment. But first we need to see who Judas was and why his death was one of judgment and not merely just things gone wrong. Luke helps us see this a little later in verses 18 and 19. If you look there, you'll note more than likely that those verses are in parentheses in your Bible. You see that? What's that about? Well, this is a helpful insertion by Luke. Although Peter is the one talking here, he's the one making the point, Luke is kind enough to stop Peter's speech and to remind the reader exactly who Judas was. He kind of inserts this kind of thought bubble off to the side. Oh yeah, don't forget who this Judas is that Peter's talking about. Look back at verses 18 and 19. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. That is filled of blood. What's up with this? Now, I know y'all did not expect to come to church this morning and get a rated R sermon. But, but this is gory. There are some extreme details here. We are told a lot of information in just these two verses. We are told here, reminded of, is that the night on G- when Jesus was betrayed, he told one of his apostles, he told his apostles that one of them would betray him. And it was Judas who, because of his own greed, this is why the reward of 30 pieces of silver is so important, that because of Judas' greed, he went out and agreed to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders. This is exactly what he does in the garden as Jesus and his apostles... Well, Jesus is praying his apostles aren't doing such a great job. He brings this crowd and betrays Jesus by kissing him on the cheek, showing that he was the man. But what Luke focuses on here is not that, but what takes place afterwards. It's after Jesus is surely condemned to death. Judas is there and he realizes that Jesus is surely condemned to death. That Judas tries to undo what he's done, feeling the weight of his decision eventually hanging himself in a tree. But, and and I realize this is gruesome, that's not exactly what Luke tells us here, is it? In fact, Luke's account is different in at least two ways from the account of Judas' death in Matthew 27, 1 through 10. Go back and read it this week. You'll see there are at least two differences that I think help us see why Luke is trying to, get a, is trying to hand us this right here, why Luke is including this in his story. First, we're told in Matthew 27 that Judas hangs himself. But here we are told about him falling headlong and bursting open. So which is it? And second, 
We are told in Matthew 27 that he returns the money to the religious leaders and it's the religious leaders who are the ones who buy the field of blood. What's up with that? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Should we just give up reading it and understanding it and trusting it because of the contradictions? Well, no, I don't think so. I think all of the things are possible. You just have to be able to fit the pieces together. For one, when Judas hangs himself, it is more than likely that the falling headlong and bursting open took place when he was either cut down or the rope with which he hung himself gave way, causing such a gory end. And I wasn't even going to include this in the sermon, but <laughs> the best way that I can think about this is, I don't know how many of you have just been driving down the highway or the interstate and you've seen a deer that's been hit by a car on the side of the road. And one of the things you always notice is that their, their stomachs are huge. They're not pregnant, okay, so don't get super sad about that. It's because their intestines have begun to release gases, causing the, the body to swell. They also are filled with rigor mortis. They become stiff. So it's not hard to understand that when Judas fell from the tree after hanging himself full and bloated, he burst open. Sorry, gory details, but it helps you understand the Bible. And second, it's not hard to understand that when the religious leaders purchase the field, they are not doing so with their own money. In fact, they are purchasing the field with the very money that they gave Judas. And so Luke emphasizes here that it's actually Judas's money that buys the field. See, we often are very literal people, and we should be at times, and we expect the Bible to spell things out for us fully and simply. But God certainly requires us to use our thinking caps sometimes, doesn't He? So why does Luke tell it the way that he does? Why does he speak as if Judas bought the field of blood? Why does he speak about Judas falling headlong? Why does he focus on those two things? Why does he tell it a bit different? I think it's because he wants us to understand that what happens to Judas is judgment. He wants us to understand that what took place with Judas' death was not by happenstance. See, what Luke wants to help the early church understand is one central thing here. This worrisome and frail beginning church who are about to go and do these amazing things. He wants them to understand one thing, that God cannot be mocked. As Paul would go on to say in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. And this is the hard truth we find at the end of Judas' life. But you say, Pastor, people, people mock God all the time. They mocked Jesus. Yes, but for a time, it will not be forever. And we'll see this again throughout the book of Acts. We'll see it with Ananias and Sapphira. We'll see it with Herod in chapter 12. That God has the ability and He has the right to expose the wicked and judge them immediately. See, the church might have thought, well, what's up with Judas? They're all sitting there, the group of 120, and they're like, Judas, man, he betrayed Jesus, kisses him on the and he just he got away with it. We find here, we're reminded here that Judas doesn't take the money and goes off and lives wherever he wants, somewhere in the, the south of Samaria in a nice country home. No. The Lord knew. The Lord saw, and as we'll see in a moment, his death was not just the tragic end to a misunderstood figure. It was seen as the Lord predicted, and the Lord judged. You see there in verse 25, skip down. It says that Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. It doesn't mean that he goes home. It doesn't mean that he goes with the apostles. No, he goes to his own place. It's shorthand for saying that he went to hell. So what does this mean for us? Well, friends, it's meant to be a warning to us first that the Lord sees and the Lord knows. Especially if you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. This is a warning to you to see and know that ignoring God and openly mocking Him, while it may seem like a little thing now and of little consequence today, friend, it will not always be so. And I don't mean to say that just because bad things happen, we can go around saying, well, God must be judging them. God must be judging them. 
We have to be careful to know the mind of God. But we can say this with certainty, that God can and does still act in this way in order to make Himself and His glory known. For those who wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, this is something that you have to come to terms with. C.S. Lewis talks about in this way when he says that we must decide if Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You cannot ride the fence about Jesus, and you cannot ride the fence about God. If God is who He says He is, and He, being God, deserves and demands full worship and submission and obedience, and He is loving and gracious enough to tell you that and to show you His love through giving Christ who, was, who bore our sins and died upon the cross, then to turn your back on it, to ignore it, to mock Him, Friends, in any courtroom, that stands as something that must be judged. As the psalmist says in Psalm 73, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Friends, we see it all around us. Maybe you feel that way this morning. But this passage here is also a consolation. It's meant to console us, to comfort us, that God will act this way on behalf of His glory and on behalf of His people. And so Psalm 73 goes on to say, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Friend, if you're walking in open mockery of God, rebelled and turned against Him today, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and to turn to this God who shows us both judgment and mercy at one time in the cross of Christ. It is on the cross that we see God's judgment and wrath poured down for sinners and at the same time His mercy and His love extended to all who will turn from their sin and look to Him. I'll be at one of the back doors after the service today. I would love to talk to you more about what it means to turn to this God who does offer mercy to sinners who deserve judgment. I'm a Christian. I would encourage you and comfort you today to know that God will not let the guilty go unpunished and the wicked will face His judgment, whether in this life right now, later in life, or in the life to come. This is the mighty and powerful God that we serve. And as we take a moment to look at Peter's speech, we see this even more. So just consider with me point two, the Scripture fulfilled. Go back to, with me to verse 15. Let's read all of Peter's speech. And this time, I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of heretic here, but I'm going to drop out Luke's parenthetical comment. Okay, so I'm just going to read Peter's speech in its entirety. Okay, here we go. In those days, picking up verse 15, in, P- in those days Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from his bap- the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now there are two parts to Peter's speech. There's the part about Judas, and there's a part about his replacement. Let's first just think about this, apart, this part about Judas. You can imagine Peter saying to this room of people who had grown very close to one another, including Judas over the last three years, sitting there now praying, wondering what would happen next. You put yourself in Peter's shoes, what would you say? You feel compelled to stand up and to encourage these people. What do you say? You're going to give them that halftime locker room talk? Well, friends, we're down to 11. Let's get back out there. We're going to try hard. We're going to do it. What are you going to say? And what does Peter do? 
What is the first thing he wants to get across with this Judas guy and what has just happened to them? Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. He says the Holy Spirit said this would happen. So we are reminded that scripture says what God says and whatever God says always happens. The betrayal by Judas was not a deviation from God's plan. It was the fulfillment of God's plan. See, Peter is taking up what he learned from Jesus of how to read the Old Testament. Peter proves this to them by quoting from two different psalms. First, are the two psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Now, some people, some people like to get overly critical here and say, listen, this is a real stretch. We should not learn how to interpret the Bible from Peter. He just picks a couple verses from the Psalms, rips them out of context, and applies them to his situation. That's not how we should read the Bible. I would say those people are wrong, and let me try to prove that in just a couple minutes. First, I'll be doing a little devotional on Psalm 109 tonight, so I'm not going to focus on Psalm 109. But let's think about Psalm 69 for a moment. Psalm 69, picking up in verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Then down in verse 14 of Psalm 69, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Verse 19, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to me. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, who is this beginning to sound like? Doesn't it sound like Jesus himself? Surrounded by enemies, looking for comforters. There he is in the garden of Gethsemane. His closest friends struggling to stay awake. When the crowd shows up, they all split. Peter denies him. He's hanging on the cross. He cries out, and what do they give him? Sour wine. Psalm 69, verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. Here's the quote from Peter. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Can you see how it's na completely natural for Peter to go there? You take this psalm of David. David being surrounded by his enemies, heaping accusations upon him, him without cause, crying out for vindication. This is not just a picture of David, but at the same time, a picture of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. It's the same as we'll see in Psalm 109. Now, is this what David had in mind when he wrote these psalms? Okay, I'm going to write a song today, and it's going to be about me, but I'm also going to write about what's going to happen 2,000 years from now when this guy Judas shows up and betrays my greater son, the true Messiah, Jesus. No. Not only does that not make logical sense, but we also know that wasn't the case from this text. Do you see what he says there? Remember what Peter says. It wasn't David who was ultimately writing this. He said that was spoken by the Holy Spirit. True God, outside of space and time, knowing all things. We're reminded here, friends, again, that this was not plan B, but this is what God intended from the beginning. And I want to move then, and thinking about this, to some applications here, as we consider this along with point one, I want to ask you this question. What exactly did God, or to be more precise, why did Jesus choose Judas to be one of the 12 apostles? If God knew, if, if Christ knew, if the Spirit knew what was going to happen, why did He do it? John 6, 64 says, Jesus knew from the beginning 
who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. So here are five things that the Bible makes clear for personal application. Number one, Scripture cannot be broken. First, we just thought about this. The Old Testament Scriptures prophesied that this would take place. So Jesus chooses Judas to fulfill the Scriptures. In John 13, 18, Jesus says to His apostles, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. And then He quotes from another psalm, Psalm 41, 9, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Consider it, friends. Step by step, Jesus moves toward the cross, taking pains to fulfill every Scripture concerning His death. Right down to the details of how he would be handed over. The point was to show that Scripture cannot be broken and that God is in control, which leads me to the second application. Horrible sins serve God's purposes. By choosing to be betrayed by a close friend, even by a kiss, Jesus shows us that the most despicable act in all of history the greatest sin that has ever been committed in betraying the Son of God, the murder of the Son of God, was part of God's saving plan. Peter will go on explicitly to say this in Acts 4, 27 and 28, that by his hand and his predestination, these things took place. In other words, the lesson of Judas is that the most horrible sins in the world are used by God for His saving purposes. As one pastor put it, just when people think they're getting the upper hand, they find that their hand is serving the very one they are opposing. That's the great lesson for us to learn here. Number three, saving faith is not the same as religious activity. By choosing from the beginning an apostle who was destined for apostasy, that is, for betrayal and turning and falling away and destruction, by choosing Him from the very beginning and including Him in the close relations and by giving Him power over unclean spirits and every disease, Jesus shows us that religious associations and religious practices and and even miracle working are not sure evidences of being born again. This is one of the major problems in some church movements. That we can't verify you're a Christian unless you have some crazy manifestation of the gifts. We see here that that's not the case. Get this. In Matthew 10, 1 through 4, it describes the choosing of the twelve. It names Judas. And Jesus says this, that he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. See here that Jesus walked with Jesus, ministered with Jesus for three years, and he worked those miracles. And Judas becomes a vivid illustration of the people that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's Judas and many, many other people. And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Children, children, listen up. This is it's important to understand at a young age. Lord, Lord, we, we know who you are. We've got the doctrine right. Lord, Lord. But just going to church, just doing all of the right things doesn't mean that we necessarily have a relationship with Jesus. Faith, friends, faith, children, is a gift from God. Something that we must seek from Him. Not something that we can work ourselves up to. Lesson number four. Sovereignty. The sovereignty of God does not undermine human responsibility. Sovereignty does not undermine human responsibility. Judas serves as an illustration that God's sovereign plan and human responsibility actually go hand in hand. 
even though we like to think that they don't. And we like to get in big tussles over it. Judas' destiny was set before his betrayal. Jesus said that he kept all of his disciples from apostasy except Judas, the son of destruction, John 17, 12. And John 6, 64, I read a moment ago, says, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And then Jesus explains in the very next verse, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In other words, Judas didn't repent because it was not granted to him by the Father. His destiny was sealed, and yet he was guilty. Really guilty. Really accountable. Really blameworthy. He was really responsible for what he did. He says this himself in Matthew 27, 4. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So we learn from Judas not to stumble over the fact that a person may be headed for destruction and yet totally responsible for what he does. Now I'm sure that's going to spark some good discussions in Bible studies this week. So I'll leave that to you Bible study leaders. But number five, satisfaction in money corrupts our souls. Judas is a vivid example of the terrible, terrible power of the love of money. And how it blinds us to what is true and beautiful and valuable in this world. John 12, 4 through 6. When Mary anointed Jesus, Judas said, oozing with, with hypocrisy, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John comments, He said this not because he cared about the poor. I love how John, the, the beloved apostle, he's just, he's just going to tell you, here's what Jesus was thinking. This may be one of the things Jesus told them in those 40 days. right? Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He did that under the nose of the very Son of God, who would give his life as a ransom for many whose teachings he had heard for three years, in whose power he did miracles. But we see here that Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. That's horrific. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unspeakably evil. And it should make all of us tremble at the thought that the power of money and stuff can have in our lives, that it would blind us to what is true and what is beautiful and what is precious and what is glorious about Jesus. So when Judas got the chance, he took 30 pieces of silver. That's all it took to sell the very Son of God. Now, those are just five applications tied up in the story of Judas. We could obviously find a lot more. Let's leave it there this morning as we close by looking at verses 21 through 26 and the witness chosen. The witness chosen. Isn't it interesting the requirements that Peter says are in place for someone to replace Judas? Why does Judas need to be replaced anyway? You know, what's, what's up with that? Couldn't they just be like, all right, we're going to go with 11. It's a good prime number. We can try it out. We can see how it goes. We'll play with 11. I don't think we're going to have to forfeit. No. Why does he say that there has to be 12? It's an important point of verse 21. Look back there, it says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must. Notice the must. Just like the had to be fulfilled in verse 16. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Why the must here? Why was it necessary? Well, I think there's at least... Two reasons that they need a twelfth man. One reason from the Old Testament and one from the New. First, from the Old Testament, it's because of what the apostles represent. Luke 22, after this argument between the apostles about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and who's going to do what, this is what Jesus says to them. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am going among you as the one who serves. You are those, speaking to the apostles, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you 
as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What's going on here? We find that God has special purposes for these apostles regarding their judgment and some future place over the twelve tribes of Israel. Now there's a lot of speculation about what Jesus means here, and we don't have time to wade into those waters today. But what does this have to do with Acts 1 and fulfilling this apostolic roster with Matthias? Because of what Matthias teaches us about the new mission of Christ. You see, the apostles, like the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Joseph, show us that God is creating a new people. He's creating a new community, a new kingdom. And by sending out these 12, God is saying that something is happening that is similar to what happened before, but at the same time is completely different. Because of these men and they're going out, they're not going to create a brand new ethnic group that's going to be in a geographical location with battles and borders. But these 12 are going to go into all the world witnesses to an everlasting kingdom that spans across borders, across time, and across ethnicity. And that gets to the second reason why they needed another. They needed a certain type of apostle, a certain type of message proclaimer, a certain type of witness. They needed one who was there. Why? Because they weren't to be witnesses to the Holy Spirit. They weren't to be witnesses about what takes place in the temple. They weren't to be witnesses about how God had changed their lives. They were to be witnesses to Christ. They were to announce who He was, what He's done, and how salvation has come in Him and Him alone. And so those two men are put forward, old Joseph Barsabbas Justice and Matthias. Now we don't know why he has three names. Maybe his name was Joseph, but his mama called him Barsabbas and his friends called him Justice. But you would think the guy with three names, he's the shoe-in, right? I mean, that guy's got three names. He must be super cool. He must be the one we want. And yet, we find that the twelfth man, only ever mentioned here in all of the Bible, was the one who was always there in the background, watching, following Jesus, remaining faithful in the silent, humble role he played. Friends, those of you who serve in this church and serve in the background, and nobody ever sees you, and you don't get to march across the stage, and you're just in the back cleaning up and sweeping and wiping and making. You're a Matthias. There in the background. If there was ever one who was faithful with little, then given much, it would be this man, Matthias. But the final question we have to wrestle with is how they chose him. How they chose him. As you read through the Gospels, one of the things you may consider is Matthias is there every single time. So how do they choose them? On the surface, it looks like they play a game of chance, pulling straws. We find that it's much more than that, all because of their prayer. Look at verses 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, this is a corporate prayer evidently, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place and ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. See, this word for lots says there that they cast lots. It's this very same word in the Greek. It's used earlier in verse 17 when Peter says that Judas was allotted a share. Who is it that's allotted a share? Who is it that they would decide to take Judas' place? Well, consider that word chosen. That word chosen, you find it there in the beginning of Acts. That he's going around to those that he chose. We find it again here at the end of Acts 1, chosen. See, a lot of times when we read prayers in the Bible, we just assume that they're praying to God in general, right? Who are they praying to here? We're told in the beginning of Acts that it was Jesus who chose His apostles. We find here at the end of Acts 1 that they are praying to their Savior. 
They are praying to Jesus because he is the one who chooses. See, the Lord there, you'll notice in your Bibles, is not in all caps. It's not Yahweh. It means Master. They're praying to the Master because He is the one who chooses. This is where we get to where the rubber meets the road, friends. What is there for us in this passage? What are we to take away from today? What truth should be upon our lips after we eat and drink in just a moment? Is it not this, that our God is the only one who is truly indestructible? Greater than any superhero or any space alien, God is indestructible. Therefore, His plans and His work and His mission is indestructible. And yet, we're going to celebrate a table that reminds us that the indestructible God allowed himself to be destructed, allowed himself to be destroyed so that he may redeem his chosen, so that he may redeem his people and draw them to himself, united together to be witnesses to the coming kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we... Thank you that you are indestructible, that you are glorious and that you are mighty. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who gave himself over to destruction, to being destroyed, to being taken, beaten, mocked, and crucified. Lord, as we prepare to come to this table now, Would you draw us, our affections, our minds, our very souls to worshiping our Savior who has chosen us and redeemed us. It's in His name we pray.